stars of the culture wars. I'm your host Alexandra Marshall and today we are joined by the Honourable Gary Hardgrave. So Gary, wonderful that you could join us today on Curtain Call. Well, I'm glad to be here and thanks very much for the opportunity. Really, I don't like That's talking okay. about it but I'm happy to do it. <laughs> it's our first show so welcome and thank you for being our guinea pig for today. That's now, right. now politicians and media commentators tend to be the people who turn the culture wars from a hobby into a profession. And you, Gary, have done both of these. Your mm. public career started in radio. What was it that sort of drew you towards radio as a career? Well, look, it was the high school I went to, McGregor State High School here in Brisbane. Uh, and in 1974, so, you know, eons ago, we, uh, as a group of kids, decided we were pretty interested in the way electronics worked and radio worked. So we just became interested in understanding uh, radio as a medium and communication. So we ended up running a, a school radio station. So lunch hours, three days a week, and ended up as much as five. Uh, even before school, we were broadcasting from our own little studio that we built ourselves with equipment that we'd acquired with help from some people in the local community. Uh, we sold advertising. Uh, and about 15 people out of that high school radio experience actually went on and have had careers, successful careers in Australia's uh, media industry. So there you go, high school started it. <laughs> so you're a bit of a tech buff more than a culture warrior at that time. You were more fascinated with the get up. Oh, look, I suppose you could put it that way. But I, I think when it was all said and done, I came from a family of high tradition, long tradition of doing things in the community. Uh, my father was given an order of Australia, which is nice. My mum should have got a Victoria Cross, frankly. Uh, but, you know, the, the work you did in the community was just what you did. Uh, it was an era, uh, I guess, from the, the time of my grandparents. Uh, enormous values. I think you, you learn from, from those of us lucky enough to have had our grandparents for a long time in our life. Uh, you know, that sense of thinking about others, uh, uh, them ahead of yourself, uh, always having a, something on the table to, to give to them when they arrive and having a clean home. Uh, these were very simple time simple maxims but they were values and and i think looking back i i i don't believe there's any silver spoons anywhere in our house uh grandfather one was a truck driver and the other one was a pick and shovel council worker you know so they, they were really down to earth everyday worker australians served in the second world war and and dad's a metal machinist by trade so, so community service has been at the heart of my family for a long time well, I wouldn't exactly call it community service for, in my case, we had a community radio at our school, but I was always down the art lab and the science lab, so I never got involved. But I'm making up for it now with my ad hoc little setup I've got here with chairs and things balanced on books and we'll get there. Um, look, yeah, by, the mid, 
<laughs> why not? Um, by the mid eighties, you transitioned into TV with, I think shows like state affair and the ABC seven thirty report. Was yeah. that the sort of medium you were chasing and that's how you ended up in TV or was it the stories that led you toward TV? I was probably a little bit accidental. Look, I was a rocky jockey. When I left school, I became a rock and roll disc jockey at a, at a radio station that was number one in Brisbane at the time for IP and no longer exists. So there you go. I broke it. Uh, but uh, <laughs> Uh, you broke it, it, you bought it. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't actually buy it. But look, I did kids TV for a while. Uh, so I learned, uh, you know, it was look, it was just the fun of it all, to be honest. It was just the absolute fun of it all. And then big people's television came along, current affairs television. And so I just took those values to the task of doing that, that work. Right. Well, so this makes my ne next question even more interesting. Um, th they say that you are mad to go into politics. So what on earth possessed you to give up this TV and radio that you loved and to take up the political fight, join the Liberal Party of Queensland and then contest seats that you eventually won, I think it was in 1996? Look, philosophically, I've always had a sense of trust. I always believed that most people are going to do the right thing. And so gravitating towards a party that believed strongly in the importance of an individual and their effort rubbing off on their family and their community made sense to me. And during my time on big people's television, doing television current affairs for the Seven Network and, and for a while for the 7.30 report, uh, you know, I just saw a lot of politicians up close and personal knew most of them were well motivated, regardless of which side they were on. Uh, remember, this was the, you know, 80s, 70s and 80s. Uh, I mean, look, I saw that they could do it. I could do it. It was my community. So I stuck my hand up and and had a go. And sometimes, you know, you've got to just have a go to see whether or not you've got what it takes uh, to, to do a job. And if you fail, well, that's right, you dust yourself off. But as long as you do what you do with a sense of enhancing your reputation, not destroying it, uh, then you'll be okay. And it's a community I still live in. So I've been in this since I was a kid, 50 years. So I can't hide, nowhere to play, nowhere to run, nowhere to hide, basically. <laughs> Well, not destroying your reputation is kind of the trick of politics. It can be a bit of a difficult street to walk down. For many, uh, you've seen like uh, Kevin Rudd is really trashing his career right now. And I think Turnbull has done much the same. Um, but it seems to me that you've come to this via an idea of, of community and heritage and culture like we've been talking about. So given that, is there something that you really wanted to see achieved in politics that you didn't quite manage during your time? sort of a, a project or a policy that you thought was important to your community that you'd like to see dug up and, and resurrected by the people in politics today? Well, to be honest, I'd like to see left government. I'd still like to see left government. I said in my first speech on the 1st of May 1996 that the really the only role for a, a, a government in Australia, as big, a country as big as Australia with such a, a sparse population, is to provide the big infrastructure that we need to get the job done and then just leave it to those, the entrepreneurial class, the, the people that you can trust who want to you know, back their, themselves by putting their whole house on the line to, uh, to open up a business and employ people. I mean, I think less government is the trick. And I think the big failure is that uh, it's been 12, 13 years since I've left Parliament is that over the last uh, 20 years, really, uh, there's been so much extra paperwork, so little trust shown by government. So many people in politics believe that the people are there to serve them rather than the other way around. And so if there's a failure, it's probably the fact that I, 
I didn't uh, blaze the trail and make sure that nothing grew in the trail after I'd blazed it on that. But there's still hope. There's still breath in my body. We've got to keep fighting these wars. It's important to trust people and stop taxing them and stop over-regulating them. Let's free the country up. Yes, well, rule number one of politics, the people serve the country and the politicians are meant to serve the people. Amen. Um, Amen. <laughs> exactly. I think they've forgotten that. Would you? We're looking at this big brother style government going on. Would you think it's fair to say that Labor and Liberal have both gone the wrong way as far as this smaller government mission? Yeah, because it's got, it's got so easy to just simply ring up uh, a plethora of the Humphreys or Humphreys and just say, what do you think? And, and of course, self-preservation is one of the key things that humans do. And so if you're in a bureaucracy and you've got the power of a pen and, and parliamentarians, well, let's just keep them out of this. I mean, they're elected. What would they really know? They might have values, but it doesn't matter. We just need to get what we think is important done. Uh, I mean, look, it's a joke, but they should not name the Department of Employment the Department of Employment. They should name it the Department of Unemployment because the last thing you want to do is to find jobs for people if you're in the Department of Employment. And I think this runs all through politics and, and government. So, you know, Alexandra, the key thing here is we need the pollies to get back into the core philosophy of whether they trust the people, whether they want to overtax them, whether they want to overregulate them. And if they don't trust everyone, tell us. Tell us they don't trust us. Tell us that most people do the wrong thing. I actually personally believe most people do the right thing. So why the heck are we punishing everybody to try and keep them conforming to some form of paperwork? We're stifling creativity and stifling individualism and and that is a real concern to me right now yes well uh michael crichton the the wonderful late michael crichton had yeah. a wonderful speech on fear being used by politicians in the press to control the public and i think he was spot on when he gave that that was before COVID, obviously yeah. but great speech so sort of on that vein uh, on this show, we want to get behind the curtain on the culture warriors, so to speak. And you are, of course, one of our great culture warriors. That's very kind think of. That, <laughs> of course. Do you think that we have always been caught in a culture war since you started your career all the way back in radio? Or is there something different about our current era? Like, do you believe that the disagreements that we're having politically today are worse than when you began your career in radio? Look, when I was a little kid, the most thing around were the monkeys and the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. I mean, we were told in the late 60s, all you need is love. Now all we get is hate. And I don't get this kind of hatred thing that's out there. I don't get that. And if that's a culture war, then so be it. Because you see, I think in politics and in life, sometimes you never know quite which side to be on. You might have your own personal values and they should never diminish the opportunity for you to learn from people with different values because often... You know, there's a learning exercise. I'm not afraid of that. But when you start to hear some of the putrid hatred that's being offered now as the first remit of people involved in public debates, the, oh, you say that, so therefore I don't agree with you and I never agree with you on anything kind of logic, you think, well, hang on, which side of the argument are I going to be on? You, you hear all of these people who are filthy rich, uh, incredibly elite, you ask them, they'll, they'll tell you the Hollywood set and all that sort of stuff, and you think, Oh, look, you know, when push comes to shove, I can't agree with you. Uh, so I tend to side with those who say, I'm not afraid to be wrong. I'm not afraid to be proven wrong. 
but I do want to stand for something or else, as the old saying goes, I'm going to fall for everything. And there's too many now falling for everything. And I said, if that is the culture war, then I've picked my side. Well said. Well, well said, Gary. Now, just to switch gears slightly, and I'm going to read this to make sure I get it right. right. When you were Minister for Cultural, uh, Multicultural Affairs, you said of the Sudan that the United Nations has identified it as an area in greatest need, that this is a country that produces out of the ground so much oil each day, but that they convert it into bullets. But mm. that, and I'm going to paraphrase you now, the people want peace, even if their governments do not. Now, a lot of Australians and indeed the Western world at large are starting to come to the conclusion that the UN's limitless, borderless mass migration plan to solve the problems of the Middle East is not the correct way forward because it seems to be spreading violence into previously peaceful nations rather than stopping violence. Would you say that it'd be fair to come to the conclusion that mass migration of this kind of scale that the UN has put forward and is continuing to drive is not the answer? Look, it depends on where people are landing and the, the reception they get. Australia has always been built off the back of migration and that has been at the heart of our economic growth for a long time. Some call it a Ponzi scheme, but nevertheless, never, it nevertheless has been a key part. You know, we've been able to get more and more uh, people into our country through a defined and planned scheme. We're only one of about seven to 10 countries in the world that actually do have a planned migration program, which includes a refugee component. So look, to Sudan at that, that time, I went to in, in 2003 to the Kakuma refugee camps, the about five camps around the Kakuma River in northern Kenya on the Rift Valley Desert. This is barren. This is a place where I saw people who fled uh, from Sudan across the border into Kenya, registered as refugees. I spoke to a whole group of them who were actually in a University of South Africa uh, pavilion where they were learning uh, a university level studies. And these were the people that could run a country uh, down the track. And I said to them, you can't all come to Australia. You know, we just don't have enough room for all of you. And this fellow got up and he said, look, Minister, we don't want to go to Australia. We actually want to go back to our country. We just want peace. And so that's why I reflected on, upon that on a few occasions. So the whole idea that we can come in and maybe because we're white and we're right, you know, and all this sort of stuff, and we say, oh, you poor people, come and live with us, um, is not just simply a, a sense of generosity and charity. This is actually responsibility. And Alexandra, I'll finish the point on this. The problem we have is that people in this country believe we have to change our rules to accommodate people who are not being raised in this country. And that is wrong. They come here for our rule of law. They come here for our lifestyle. They come here for our conventions. And yes, they contribute to our culture. But unless we actually enforce our rules, uh, uh, no matter what their circumstance might be, everybody treated the same before the law, we're letting them down. And we see too many judgments in court cases where they say, oh, that poor person's come as a refugee. We should therefore cut them some slack and allow them to beat the living daylights out of somebody on the street or whatever. You know, these, these sorts of cases have occurred. I don't think that's what they want. They actually want framework. They want structure. They want rules. And so sometimes some people take it to the extent of saying, well, let's see how far we can go. And then, of course, you've got another group who are sort of twitched between the two cultural experiences. Parents aren't well equipped to raise them in a Western environment, can only do what they did when they were back in the old country. And you can't hit kids anymore, apparently. And 
you can't punish kids anymore, apparently. And so the kids just run wild. And I think it's really sad because every individual is worthy of some respect and some investment. And hopefully they return on that. And most of them, most of them do. But the UN, they want to have everybody the same in all places. And that's just a recipe for disaster. Yes, well, uh, I don't think it helps that our schools at the moment are breeding an environment of segregation and social identity, which sets people's differences under a microscope instead of treating all kids the same and as equals based upon their talent. I've never seen such division in the school system than what they're trying right now. I, I agree. And it concerns me greatly because, you see, I have a huge confidence, right? I was raised as a Protestant Christian who believe that you should do to others as you would have them do unto you. And I believe in that. And I have plenty of Muslim friends. I was with a birthday with some Buddhist friends last night, uh, you know, Hindu friends. We've got all these different friends from different religions, different cultures. And you know what? We all find the things we all have in common. It's family. It's a sense of trying to encourage the next generation and to nurture and respect the one that came before us and look after our elderly. It's a sense well, maybe of... Maybe the together. problem is this culture of fence. Like we're always so offended by everything. We used to just laugh at it. We used to, you know, yeah. take the mickey out of each other and that was a joke and that was okay. And now we're yeah. not allowed to laugh at anything. Well, look, you know, Australians give people a fair go. They want to test whether they're fair income. And you're right, we've lost the sense of humour. Look, there's always a fine line between funny and offensive. You've got to be careful. But there is nothing that I've ever said that I believe is offensive. And I've actually often explained to people from different backgrounds. <laughs> This is actually meant as a joke. But I'll tell you, there's a bloke I know, he's sadly dead these days, but he came from a Chinese-Cantonese background and he had such a long convoluted, uh, convoluted uh, Chinese name when he arrived in Sydney in the 1920s. The people at the port said, well, I'll tell you what, mate, we're just going to call you Tom. So he became Tom for the rest of his life. Yes, he had a Chinese name, but everyone called him Tom. He laughed it off. He got it. And many people do. And that's what Australians would do if they had to go and live in Asia. You have to change and adapt to where you are. Now, look, we're going to switch gears slightly. And um, your stint on Norfolk Island might be a bit of a mystery to some of your uh, viewers and watchers. Now, for those who don't know, Norfolk Island is a small self-governing territory between New Zealand and New Caledonia. And you were essentially sent over there to reform and salvage their economics after they sort of their population grew to the point that they couldn't manage anymore. Now, without getting too bogged down in the politics of what happened, what did you learn about political systems while you're over there handling this and the sense of nationalist spirit that people have? And I mean, there was certainly a sense of nostalgic irrationality going on through the process that certainly I noticed while I was reading it. Sure. Look, Nor Norfolk Island is Australia's second oldest settlement. It was settled six weeks after Sydney Cove. And where we lived at Government House, so, so I lived, you know, I was a vice-regal appointment, lieutenant to the Governor-General of Australia for almost three years. And as administrator, we lived in Government House. It was in what was originally called Sydney, Norfolk Island. That's how part um, of, much a part of Australia it was. So 6th of March, 1788, uh, people arrived there. They set up farming communities and, in fact, provided the food that kept the Sydney Cove uh, on the mainland uh, going because it was all sandy soil, as you would, would recall, around Sydney Harbour. So, you know, it was very much so part of our history. So there are Australian citizens living uh, 1,400 clicks off the coast, uh, due east of Byron Bay. Uh, they had Just no next door. Yeah, that's right. They, but they had no Medicare. They had no access to our social security. They didn't pay tax in the Australian system. 
And now we've left the place with Medicare, Social Security in place, more people on age pension than ever before. And, uh, and of course, 85% uh, of people don't earn enough money to pay tax. But what I learned there, the, the point of your, your question was that it was built around a fiefdom. And those uh, who were liked by those in power uh, got all of the benefits and those who weren't liked uh, didn't. And I remarked to them, I said, you know, the funny part about Australia is you don't even have to like the government to get assistance. If you're entitled to it, you'll get it. So I think our fairness system now, a few years on, has been proved to have worked. And certainly during this uh, pandemic nonsense of this year has saved a lot of people from despair that might not have otherwise been uh, been afforded to them. So I, I think uh, we, we did a good job. Uh, it was tough, but of course, the 20 people in charge didn't really like us very much. And there were about 200 people who used to call us many names, none of which we're going to use even on this uh, blog channel. You're not to soil my channel with that kind of talk, Gary. No, I, I've been studying political systems, so I find it quite fascinating that what you think might be a reasonable and efficient solution is not always favoured by the population you're trying to help because they have emotional attachments and previous political uh, power organisations with the people who are currently there. So it's a lesson to uh, politicians that you can't just flip the switch and change things. It's uh, more complicated than that. Um, yeah. Now, on to the Sky News, Gary Hardgrave, that your viewers all know and love. You are, of course, the host on a major news network of Gary Hargrave on Friday. It's a great show. We all watch it. Now, that is a fabulous opportunity and platform in which to get your message out. So considering that, what would you say the most important social message is at the moment if you could get it out on a platform? Oh, look, I really want to get that sense of values about sense of trust of, of people. Smaller government uh, is, in my view, uh, a sign that government trusts people. Uh, how can people trust government if government doesn't trust them? So I think people should feel confident. I don't think people should um, go quiet about their own personal values. And, and, you know, your own personal heritage and upbringing should give you the tools to be able to interact with people who've got a different personal heritage and upbringing. It allows you to at least have an interaction. I, I've had a lot of things said to me over the years from, from people, and I'm very confident that despite the fact that my background, my examples are different to theirs, that we have enough in common that brings us together. So creating that sense of national unity and purpose is really important uh, to me. So I try and deal with that, but, oh, look, you know, you're up against an avalanche of people who want to create division on a daily, hourly basis, on any matter, at any time. They'll pick apart what I'm saying on this and try and create division for you, for me, and for anybody else. And I think that's really sad. So you've got to be stoic enough to stand your ground and say, well, look, I don't mind being wrong. And, and it's kind of convenient because you often are. Uh, but uh, it's, it's important that at least you stand for stuff and are willing to say, this is what I think is important. But if you, if you think I'm wrong, tell me. That's OK. Uh, I might even change my mind if you've got a good enough argument. I've got no problem with that. Yes, well, there's the... There's the fabulous Stephen Crowder over in uh, the UK. He's a Canadian who moved to the US and his tagline for his show is change my mind in which he invites kids to sit down from universities and he challenges their point of view. And yeah. very rarely can they go beyond the depth of the hashtag they learnt from their teachers. 
So yeah. it's a it's a noble idea to say let's change people's minds and have a debate and have a discussion because screeching at each other is not going to get us anywhere at the end of the day. Yeah. Um, now, and I think you've led into this beautifully, in order to win the culture wars, so to speak, uh, we're going to require more generations of commentators and writers to come up underneath us and to continue on the fight. And so, uh, and also we have to get rid of this stranglehold, dare we say, monopoly that the left have over our media and over our conversation. Uh, so would you see yourself as a cultivator of new conservative talent? I notice that you give young people a chance on your show quite often? Look, I think it's important that people not be afraid. I was nurtured in so many ways by people who are long gone, long dead, but were nevertheless themselves uh, highly politically intelligent. Uh, you know, I often talk about the late Sir William Knox. Bill Knox was the leader of the Liberal Party here in Queensland. And he once said to me, Gary, you've only got to win an election by one vote. Um, and what do you get out of that? Well, it's true. You only have to win an election by one vote. He said to me, go out and find that person and commit to at least having a go at what they think is important. But the real lesson out of that is that every person matters. Uh, in a political contest, every person is important. Sir James Killen, uh, as a predecessor in the seat of Morton that I represented for 12 years, honoured to represent, he, he said to me, he said, politics is humbling. It is about the humble service of the people. It's about the parish, my boy. It's all about the local community. Uh, I, I Look, I don't name drop these names purely to improve my prowess. I'm saying to you, Alexandra, from the lips of the great, I can pass that information on to a newer generation. And I've spoken to a lot of younger people and said, look, you know, develop your views. Um, don't, be able, don't be afraid to contest your views. But there is a reason that some of the great philosophers and some of the great writers of hundreds of years ago are still revered because they analysed the communities of their days. Edmund Burke, you know, the sort of for evil to triumph, um, good men do nothing, that kind of philosophy is still very valid today. And he was a proper English-Irish gentleman uh, caught up in, in, the, in, in, the, in the split between England and Ireland in the 17, late 1700s. I, I mean, you, you really, you know, if you ignore history, you're bound to repeat it. And it's important that People like me are going to offer the living word of people of the past because I've got it in my head. Um, well, I've got a job to do. That's what I'm trying to do. Yes, well, I'm not convinced that some of our politicians currently, your good self in, uh, excluded from this, have read some of the great philosophical works on no. politics because I'm not seeing a lot of evidence that they understand liberty and they understand the trust and the yep. almost witchcraft that holds together a democracy because it's not uh, what's written in law, it's trust. And you're completely right. If there's no trust, there is no democracy. But yeah. um, we shall finish with a fun question, which we hope to make uh, yep. a new uh, cultural event of this show. If you could have dinner with any historical figure, Gary Hardgrave, who would it be and what would you ask them? Look, you know, it's um, it's a great question. And I mentioned Edmund Burke and I... I would be humbled to, to meet him. But in a more contemporary sense, I'll, I'll say this. Um, and there's a lot of talk about American elections at the moment, but Ronald Wilson Reagan, in my view, was the greatest American president in my lifetime so far. Uh, Donald Trump has been incredible as well, and I find it amazing how thick his hide has had to be to take on 
the uh, you know embellished and entrenched nonsense of Washington. But Ronald Reagan's story is very compelling, and he would have been a charming person to have dinner with. There's no doubt about it. He changed the world for the better. He really did create a safer world for me and a safer world for you. He stood for things. He came from a democratic uh, political background. He was a union leader. He was the Screen Guild Association president. He then thought about how money was created and how wealth was created, how communities were created and how the middle class is the great stabilizing influence all around the world and the importance of giving people with an entrepreneurial flair a sense of reward. Smaller government. I would sit down if I could right now and I'd say to Ronald Reagan, look at the mess of Washington. How would you fix it? How would you inspire a nation to get behind you while you did? Because I think it's important for the whole of the world that in America, uh, and the Washington example is horrendous, uh, that, uh, that America is strong and, and vital and capable of being there when we need it. Um, I'm never worried about America getting involved in foreign conflicts. I'm more worried when they're not. And uh, Ronald Reagan would be a fascinating person to sit down and talk with. That's the old peace through strength. So thank you very much for joining us today on Curtain Call, Gary. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on Curtain Call. We are hosted by The Good Source, the home of conservative and libertarian voices. Help us fight fake news by following us online. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and all good podcasting services. If you enjoy this content, please like and subscribe.